maybe the easiest is just to give a bit of background. So the way uh, this started, right, was that I, I stumbled into the last 30 minutes or so of a debate you were engaged with. And the content of the debate, based on what I understood from the, the call, the poster and whatnot, was about um, what is the potential of democracy in the future? And more broadly, are there sort of different governmental regimes, uh, governance structures that could be explored in the future? Is that is that correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, the debate very much was about the value of democracy and whether democracy is the end-all product. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the automatic consequence of that, obviously, is if it isn't, what what is then the alternative? Are there paths towards something else? Is something happening already? Um, however, I think in many ways the the, the debate that you listened into um, was an example of the sort of the, the the taboo that exists around actually looking at alternatives because that would be acknowledging that democracy is not necessarily the deterministic path of humanity. And I think there's still a lot of resistance against that idea that that it's not dangerous to look at alternatives, that there's nothing totalitarian about asking yourself, is democracy actually effective or not? And is it? And, and so the debate very much was a back and forth about, okay, uh, is democracy right? Is it wrong? And it never got to the alternative stage because that's not what we do in society. If you, if you look at any newspaper articles, if you look at any um, general media, um, there's a lot of debate about improving democracy. There's no debate about should we look for something else? So th- th- this was one point I was particularly curious about. So it was the debate about um, democracy as a pure democracy, representative democracy as a governing structure, or was it about the the concept of democratic values? Meaning, uh, I think in, in contemporary society, there's sort of a, a, a conflation of one person, one vote, equity with the concept of democracy. So was it the notion that you can maintain democratic ideals, uh, equity of genders, equity of religions, equity of, of, of different socioeconomic classes, while also exploring um, different governance structures beyond democracy? Or was it specifically or was it more broadly about everything is up for, for, for theory? It would have been great if it had been about that first question. Mm. It would have been great in in the end. Um, I mean, and again, this is this is not just in our debate, but that we had. But it's something that you see over and over again. Um, this conflation of everything that's good about society, as you say, e- uh, equity, uh, but also th- things like freedom and 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 those kinds of issues are equated with democracy, making it very difficult to ask yourself. Okay, can we can we actually do this? Can we guarantee those kinds of values that maybe are much more universal than democracy without democracy itself, without a political structure? So I would I would sort of have a problem with the the, the wording of democratic values. They're not democratic. They're certain human values mm. um, at the most basic moral level, fairness, which you also see around in nature. It's not just a human thing, but even among animals, there's a sense of fairness uh, that exists. Um, those kinds of moral basics should be separated from democracy. And democracy might be a path towards them. And they, they have, certainly in the 20th century, democracy has been a successful path in many countries towards a lot of those values. And we should be, you know, we should acknowledge that. But that is not to say that democracy is the only path. And certainly when you, when you talk about um, things like freedoms, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the positive freedoms, um, the, your access to opportunities, which requires education, which requires stability, which requires political opportunities? Or are you talking about negative freedoms, the, the lack of imposition from a state? 
And I think we often have that conversation within only a democratic context, whereas I think you can perfectly make the case that a lot of positive freedoms exist, exist among the middle class in China, mm. even though you've got a very a state that's very that imposition that positions itself in the center of um, social life in the center of thought. Um, a lot of middle class young Chinese people have very good education, which gives them a lot of opportunities to make their own to choose their own path in life. That is done without what we call democracy. And, you know, recognizing that and recognizing that those values are not absolutely dependent on democracy is important. Mm-hmm. This this uh, mode was also something particularly curious for me from the debate where um, the... So I think there's, there's this broad um, uh, contention that we're in a different mode of discourse at this point compared to like 20 years ago, where the there's this um, book called... Uh, salsa dancing into the social sciences but the author basically in the first uh, introductory note talks about how when she entered uh, graduate school her phd studies there's something called a deep field meaning that uh, uh, her advisor could give her 12 books and you read these 12 books these are the seminal works of the field and once you know these you essentially become sort of a, a deep expert within the field by the time she graduated, I think it had something to do with uh, the growth of the internet, the expansion of, of publication and so on. She said it became a wide field, meaning there was so much uh, work, so much publication that it was impossible to uh, read seminal works, uh, more so identify them. So that there was such a vast um, range of content that it started to alter how discourse happens. And th- that this was a particularly point of interest that I thought within the debate too, that each of you seem to have hyper-specific examples, which I think grounds an argument in reality. But given that there's such a wide field of discussion, for instance, you just mentioned China, middle class, and so on. For me, I I don't have knowledge of that, but it seems that uh, that is one thing that's sort of lost with with a wide discourse, but it seems to also drastically alter the nature of debate in general, because it seemed to be Within the, within the context of the debate, and not to limit it to that debate, but what I've seen in general with debates, they tend to, especially when you put them in front of an audience, be a battle about monologues, uh, that each of you cite very specific examples, and whether you engage with another person's specific examples seems to be very difficult, in that your knowledge base is different, the person you're debating with is different, I, it's uh, that's a very interesting observation, and I, I mean, without wanting to really go into the values of that specific debate, because yeah. the other debater isn't here, and yeah, I, yeah, I feel uncomfortable yeah, yeah, with yeah. with evaluating that. But um, I, um, I, I do agree that just like in a way, our debate was exemplary for this democratic taboo that exists and the continuous back and forth about democracy. It is a very good example of that of a world where. If you look at the philosophical debates of the 20th century, um, you were a positivist and people knew what positivism means and knew what the main authors were of positivism and um, what the relationship was between that and Marxism. And um, you were opposed to neoliberalism and, you know, and the Austrian school and those kinds of things. And it was clear. And now, I guess because of globalization, technology and the, the huge explosion of opinions, uh, the huge explosion, what is it? There are 300 million blocks in the world or 400 million blocks in the mm. world. And huge, um, yeah, you you just pick and choose. And, and you're absolutely right. It, it becomes a 
it becomes monologues and it doesn't become a conversation and dialogue because you don't have that uh, positional basis to start from. Mm. It's not that we can say, okay, this this is the framework. This is our starting point. Let's now see where we get with this dialogue. It is not. Uh, the moment that you say something that might be threatening to my position, I just pick from somewhere else mm. and I go down that route because I no longer have to identify myself as a positivist or I no longer have to identify myself as that. And that may s- sound like a good idea, but it does create, mm, uh, maybe the word is a certain liquidity to conversations and a, you can't grasp onto anything anymore. You can't hold, you can't, you, you can't base yourself on any specific wording because then the person just changes the wording and that's it. And that's that's a very interesting that's a very interesting point. And I assume that this is something that all social science sciences at the moment suffer from, as opposed to the hard sciences, where you know they're still a theory. And if that theory is a theory, it's it's just a general consensus. And and you know you know what you're talking about. With social sciences, nobody knows what they're talking about anymore. Mm. And that is, I should assume that you in in your field of architecture also notice these de- larger debates about the social context of architecture, and you can just interpret it in any way you like right there's this uh journal uh based out of california about sort of vernacular studies but from what i gather there's been two authors essentially exchanging back and forth for the past several decades about the definition of vernacular i mean this is the it it's an it's an odd sort of um partnership because you the way you describe it liquidity sort of flexibility of opinion i don't think you use the word flexibility but it seems to be the the thing that used to be more rigid and ossified can become a bit more porous and flexible on a personal uh, level and it starts to alter discussion but you would think that would also come hand in hand with a degree of um, a lack of fear over experimentation specifically over something like a a governance structure, right? That, that if there is this explosion of thought, explosion of opinion, uh, a vast expansion of, of micro moments where sovereignty is established, uh, you'd think there would be a more openness about exploring possibility, especially given the fact that we're in the year 2019. And it seems a bit unusual to assume that we've achieved that human settlement has evolved within the perfect structure that governs and finances its its broader habits. But at the same I th- you would think so, but what at the same time is happening um, in parallel to this, I think, is a very... Um, it, it, it supercharges charges the b- debate at an emotional level. So um, that is not to say that heated debates didn't exist previously. Heated debates have, has, have always... Passionate debates have always been there. But... Um, by everyone having their own opinion and um, having this 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 continuous uh, flow of uh, organizational thoughts, the, the the lack of structure and the be, being able to go through also means that we're no longer um, we're we're no longer reflecting on or confronting our own, our own biases because we can just move from one to the other. We're never proven wrong. We're never be, we're never proven incorrect in something because we just move on to the next example or the next path and so what you see is that even though theoretically everyone can is free to think and say whatever they like um, you have these huge 
conceptions, these biases in our society that influence all of us and that we're no longer aware of. Whereas previously, at least, it could be, it was tangible. You could actually point to someone and say, okay, now you're actually going down this Marxist path. What does that mean to you? And now you can't call anyone. No one would say that they're Marxist anymore. They would say, oh, no, I take some neo-Marxist um, approaches, but at the same time, I, I also appreciate them and appreciate them. And nobody can be pinned down anymore. As a result, nobody is confronted with their own bias. And so what we have is a theoretically completely free debate, but one that is very much beholden to social biases that are very deep in our society. And democracy is definitely one of those. And things like the idea of freedom as a generally understood concept, but once you actually start asking, everyone has their own definition of freedom and their own understanding of what it means, uh, creates a lot of passion and a lot of sensitivities that also are reflected in, uh, you know, the hypersensitivity around um, religion at the moment, the hypersensitivity about um, gender fluidity, for example, right, yeah. on both sides. The, the not so much a, a genuine back and forth about ideas and trying to together reach something better, but very much like, no, I've got my own biases, you've got your biases, and I will meander left and right until I am proven right and you're proven wrong. And there's no confronting of my own thoughts anymore because I don't really have that own thought structure in the way that typically philosophers or even politicians, I guess, used to have them. Mm. Do, do, is there a time period? I, I don't know if you're well-versed in the history of... of I don't know, experimentative governance structures as a whole, but th is there a time period where we can talk about either the discussion or the actual practical application of the subject? Is there a time period in which this was looked at more fluidly? Very, I mean, from a Eurocentric perspective, I'm certainly not an expert on governance structures in, for example, Asia, um, yeah. or but uh, at a European level, which in the end then translated into the current system that we have globally today, because Europe dominated the waves for a long time. Um, that's definitely the the late 17th and 18th century. Uh, so the, and how radical was it? The, I mean, it was very it... radical. It was very much about a uh, European monarchies, very much monarchies yet. I mean, depending, the English monarchy was a bit softer than, for example, the French monarchy, but very much monarchies and generally respected uh, as, um, if you like, Hobbesian entities where the Leviathan had to um, to impose its role in order to keep stability within society to um, to, the, to the great enlightenment thinkers, to Rousseau and Locke and, and all those who, who actually questioned that and said, what is an alternative to this? Which then led to the student protest um, uh, in, in, in Paris in particular, and eventually led to uh, the French Revolution and, and the whole enlightenment process that followed. Um, and there the debate was very much one without knowledge yet about democracy in, in the current form, because now we have a debate about democracy or governance forms in general uh, from what we already have and what works. We know that certain things have worked quite well, um, but in the 17th, 18th century, it was monarchy or what else? And that what else was unclear. Um, yes, there was uh, there, there were the Greeks, the Aristotle and... and, 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 and um, Greek philosophy that, that created an, uh, a basis for, for that movement. But um, the, the, the real debate was between the present and a unknown future. And right now, the debate in 2019 is one about 
um, one form of the, of the present or another form of the present. It's not about what could the future look like? What, what kind of utopian world could mm. we create that's even better than what we have right now? And that was very much the question that people like Rousseau asked themselves. What is a better world? If you start with a blank slate, what is the... What is, the, what is the better world that I would like to see when it's based on the basic human values of fairness? And, and, and eventually that led to democracy and that led to a very successful experiment. Do you think there's a, a period of required stagnation where, where you have to have, I, I mean, I assume prior to this uh, exploration of government forms, the questioning of this what else, I mean, it's quite fascinating to say it's either monarchy or this other th possibility. Unknown. Into, unknown. But was there, I mean, I assume prior to that, there's a vast, I, I know in terms of municipal structures, it tends to be a long period of established ways of governing, and then suddenly things start to move. And I, I think it's around the similar time period that you're describing. But there is a long time period where it's very stagnant. Yeah, um, I think that's historically absolutely true. Um, I mean, that would even be, I mean, th there is, of course, before democracy existed, there were democratic shapes in European societies, for example, um, that slowly did evolve. For example, if you look at English, the English political system was a very slow evolution at all, that goes back to the Magna Carta. Um, and so it was a process of 800 years or 700 years. But I think you're absolutely right. The question, I'm not sure whether it is a necessary thing or whether it's just a historical observation that that stagnation mm. occurs. I mean, would there be a reason, do you think that there would be a reason for it to be necessary to solidify something before it's possible to look to something else? Architecturally, they say you need walls to make windows. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm very curious about that. I mean, how do you sit in relation to broader discourse? I mean, is this uh, um, a topic that if you were to write and publish is it sort of shunned within certain publications or is a discourse of government form exploration something not widely explored um it's not widely explored i'm certainly not a revolutionary in any sense yeah. uh, because it's not me i mean i am by the way um at some point later this year hopefully publishing a book on this topic on mm. on um at least the value of democracy and maybe put a potential different potentially different future but that is um it is not that it is shown that if i were to send an article to the guardian new york times it could be perfectly possible that they publish it it's not you know it's not like a taboo in that sense it is just that in general circles it is not taken seriously the idea that there can be something better than democracy that is just so um uh, there there are some people who have attempted it there are some books written about hey how um how can we move beyond the current governance structures? And it's not strange that they are there because obviously it is not just a philosophical question. We see in practice that currently governance is in trouble. I mean, there are a lot of issues, you know, very existential issues, the environment, um, but also income inequality that are, that are existentially threatening our society. And it seems that the political structures that we have right now do not actually have an answer to them. So, uh, but given the existence of those structures, it is strange that there are only so few authors writing about it. And the reason for that, my interpretation of that is that we are still very much in that, if you like, that solidification mm. of the democratic thought system. We're very much, we, we're now in that, in that period where this is the only thing that we accept as reasonable. And the moment you go beyond that, and, and when I say we, I'm talking about Western society mm. mostly, because of course in China, the debate would be different. Um, but, um, 
it, it's very much about no. The moment you you step outside of those boundaries, I mean, it's a free country and you can say it, but it is not to be taken seriously because, of course, democracy is the only path to enlightenment. Of course, democracy is the only path to freedom. And 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 why would you even go there? Um, why is that? I mean, why is it such a uh, a, f- a frightening thought? If if you keep the baseline principles of of equity of of uh, the 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 hard fought battles over gender religion socioeconomic inequities the the resolution of those if you're keeping those and the merely the exploration is how you take those that as a an anchor or one of many anchors but you maintain that as an anchor and simply manifest different governance structures that seems to me not a frightening world no except that i mean it's it's of course extremely valid question um and and the the answer to it no it shouldn't be a frightening world but i think emotionally they are completely interconnected um emancipation uh the emancipation debate is a direct result of democracy that that doesn't mean that democracy would have been the only path to get there but we um we feel satisfied with our society as if we have achieved the high point of what we can achieve, and that any question, any questioning of that would be threatening to that high point. Whereas in reality, you see a very clear decline in a lot of things. So you, you it's see quite the height of ego, if you think about it. Absolutely. I mean, 2019, we've already achieved the pinnacle of yeah. human settlement. And, and, and not just that, it, it, it makes us blind to the very clear dynamics that are going in a different direction. This will be the first generation coming up now that is poorer than their parents in the past mm. 200 years or so, at least. In, the, in modern history, every generation has on average been better off economically than their parents. That is changing now. This is going to be the first generation where that's not happening. Uh, but we're blind to that because we're not asking those fundamental questions. It is about... It's about subtle things. It's about it's about whether a referendum is a good idea in democracy or not. You know, and that is minimal in the bigger picture. Mm. Whether we, you know, referendum haven't been particularly successful, but in itself, the question is is tiny compared to the bigger question of what kind of society do we really want? What are the basic values, and how can we protect those basic values? Uh, because it's all the time being covered by this layer of ego, as you say, of 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 smugness mm. about our achievements there's a similar parallel i'd say within within urbanism where there's this concept called the uh, participatory urbanism right where they technically it's bottom-up uh, collaborative the community comes together and helps shape their futures the, the way it's vocalized is very much that the way it tends to hit the ground is you have a series of um you could say planning bodies urban bodies they could come from mayoral structures they could come from urban planning departments embedded within city councils. Typically what occurs is they establish a very specific framework within which they want participation to occur so that it, you know, tends to pre-structure the collaboration to a limited set of conclusions that's already been deemed acceptable by a, a broader hierarchy. I think the I mean, the way you described it is very similar. I mean, the image I had in my head is democracy as a word. We've accepted it. And what we have now is to choose the font size or the font type, you know. Is there, so you said there is a range of people um, writing about this. Again, it's it's not my field. But I'm curious, is there a, is there a scale at which 
this is experimented. This is one of the topics that I was mentioning to you because I think probably the scale of a nation to say we're going to innovate, experiment, let's see what may happen is probably a, a, a dangerous yeah, gamble. And, um, yeah, in, in, in large part because uh, we still live in a world where the, the traditional democracies are dominant, less dominant than they used to be. But, you know, the traditional, the European powers uh, and, and the United States in particular, and maybe Japan. And so the moment you step out of a certain framework, you're seen as a threat to the system. You're seen as a threat to the status quo, right? Um, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, has, has announced that by 2050, China will have provided a new framework uh, that developing countries at least can copy, that, that the world can look up to as a better framework than the neoliberal or the liberal democratic system that's in place i mean whether that will happen or not it's not clear um but it is true that as a as a country experimenting with that is is very dangerous business in the global environment because it's just it it, it cuts um cuts into your profit margin it cuts into your ability mm -hmm. to trade it cuts into your ability to do business uh, at the un and, uh, and and that's why you see that a lot of Countries that do not necessarily share the um, liberal democratic traditions or the governance systems that we have in place in Europe still pretend to do, uh, pretend to, they, they use the language that Western societies want to hear because that opens the door to them. Mm. Um, I think if you look at exper experimentation, and, and that sort of goes back to what you're saying about uh, participation and also urban planning, there are there are adjustments to democracy that you're seeing or to the governance mm -hmm. structures that you're seeing. And, and that is at a very local level, much easier than at a national level for obvious reasons. It's very much urban planning is a very important part of that for obvious reasons, because you can do that without threatening the overall structures. The, you know, the hierarchy can still be in place while you look at how, what relationship between governance and people can be in different forms. Um, and what you also see is, is is these adjustments, like does a referendum work or not? I mean, because of Brexit and a number of other failures, uh, it's no longer a popular popular position to take that a referendum is a good path. But 10 years ago, that was the big new deal. Currently, what you see is things such as the basic universal income, uh, minimum, you know, the idea that everyone, which is, by the way, throwback to the 1990s, where economists already developed that idea. Um, the, yeah, the idea, okay, we are in our current governance structure, but if at least we provide everyone with a certain basic level of income, we take away um, a lot of the problems that we're facing right now. All of these conversations, though, are still within that overarching current status quo. There mm -hmm. is there is no there is no serious experimentation beyond that, except if you look at a country like China, and China can get away with it because it's China. It's got 1.3 billion people, and it's huge. A smaller country would never be able to get away with it. If Luxembourg said, we're going to try something else than democracy, mm. they would be in huge trouble, not just with the European Union, but with any serious trading partner around the world, except for China. Mm. What I, I guess when I was saying dangerous, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, my, my thought was more, if you take um, a system that's developed layers over time and you quickly try to reshape it, there may be the consequence that things don't work. And the things not working would be at, like at the level of cities. Let's say if you take a, a typical governmental form at the level of a city, uh, do all the research you want, come in, try to radically reshape things, even though it may be vetted fairly well based upon sort of analysis. If it doesn't work, you talk about infrastructure 
people's pensions, people's livelihoods, and this and that. that. That's what I was meaning with dangerous, that there may be a scale at which the experimentation could lead to um, sort of calamities that are quite dangerous. But, I, I mean, that's why I think the small scale, I would think there'd be more exploration within let's say states sovereign bubbles that aren't are maybe still in a raw form or at a small enough scale where the the, the consequences wouldn't be so impactful yeah i understand what you're saying um it's i'm not sure if that is the reason why experimentation is not happening i mean so you're absolutely right look and even for for example universal basic income the example that i just mentioned um you what you see is that that is being experimented with at a city level not at the national level. I mean, there are some countries that are thinking about it, but um, it, it is typically at a very local level because then it, you know, you can just see if it works and if it doesn't work, okay, not a big deal. But if that were the reason why general governance is not being questioned, then at least you would expect some white papers or you would expect some documents to appear, pop up in governance structure saying, hey, would this be an idea? And then it would be rejected for being too risky. And that conversation doesn't exist. There's no one who has proposed an idea and that then just gets rejected because it's too dangerous to implement because we don't know if it will work or not. Mm. Yeah, the, there's a deeper reason why even any proposal before the risk assessment and the cost-benefit analysis is done never reaches the higher strata of governance structures because it's a threat to the governance structures. Mm. And, and that is true at a global level in a dominant neoliberal world and it's also true at a national level where governance structures do not like to change their own identity human human organizations stick to what they know typically mm. and this sort of going back to what we talked about before there's this um probably this historically accurate observation um that all those big moments of change after, if you like, periods of solidification came after failure, came during, you know, at moments of real crisis. So France in the, um, in the 18th century was not doing well. There was extreme poverty. There was extreme, there, there, the, the monarchy was no longer functioning in the way that people believed it should. And, and there was real crisis at that level. Um, the reason why the, 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 the source of English and now British democracy also comes from a time that, that a king specifically misruled, King John in this case, misruled the country and barons stood up and said, we cannot take this anymore. And if you want our continued support, you better give in to what we have because this is a moment that for us it's either, uh, either change or war, you know, so so maybe the, the, the problem here is that as long as there's no extremely obvious crisis, the structures that rule our society are strong enough to resist any fundamental change. They're willing to look at incremental changes, but not fundamental changes. Having said that, I would argue that we're at the moment that, that there are some very existential and big crises, but it's just not very visible because people, or at least it's not visible in relationship to our governance structures. The environment um, is not seen as a governance problem. It is seen as a technical or economic um yeah, it is seen very technocratically uh, oriented, technocratic, right? Uh, yeah, like, okay, so we need to reduce our carbon emissions. It is not about, hey, maybe there's something um, structurally hard-coded in our society that blocks us from 
doing the thing that we all know needs to be done. I mean, there's no serious person is doubting that climate change is real and that it's caused by humans in large part. Mm. Um, but for some reason, we're just looking at incremental changes, n- even though everyone knows that those incremental changes are not going to be enough. I just, I'm thinking about this because I just have a student whose thesis I've supervised and who's actually written exactly about this. And um, I mean, the general idea, I, I mean, I, I find it surprising today compared to even 10 years ago. The general idea now is we even if we make changes, it's going to impact us within the upcoming century. Just let's bunker down. And, and that is every serious I, I would say serious people would all agree with that that is i mean there is that very i mean you don't predict the future but i mean scientists have a clear consensus that we're going to be in big trouble later on in the century regardless of um, what we do at an incremental level because we're thinking about it at an incremental level so this if, we, if I mean. we talk about a risk yeah. assessment maybe the least risky risky thing to do would be actually to radically change our governance structure to find some kind of way that we can radically alter our behavior and at the very least stop the the climate catastrophe that is or at least you know minimize the climate catastrophe that is heading our way um, and so maybe, maybe actually from a theoretical perspective, the best thing to do would be a social revolution to avoid what's, what's coming, um, or at least to try to avoid, even if we don't know if that social revolution works, um, it can't be worse than what we're heading towards, right? That's to me, that's the, you would think those two would go hand in hand in that if you have this idea that we need to bunker down in the next 70, 80, hundred years, we're going to face very bizarre ecological dynamics then you would think that would come accompanied with severe radical changes to the baseline fundaments of society but it's bunker down with incremental change to me that's a very unusual one and i think the the one thing i can link to is this notion of um societal decay and how that can uh spur sort of innovation within government forms or financial forms whatever you want to consider it there's something collapsing for instance about new york city a lot of my studies are about new york city because my phd was on new york city and you just sort of maintain momentum after a while but there's for instance the last year i think nearly a quarter of a million eviction cases were filed uh, over the past five years, 110,000 of those eviction cases, I think that's the number, came from a single law firm. In the same time, there's the so the court systems are, in, on, on the one hand, overflowing with these cases. Judges are seeing something like 60 or 70 cases a day, and it's just, it's, it's a system fundamentally not working. But on the other hand, you do have people filing these eviction cases. So you have one part of the society, societal construct, we can say, that's clogged, not working. There's a, essentially a humanitarian crisis in regard to housing. The public housing authority is very close to bankrupt, if not beyond it within New York City. So you're seeing a, essentially a collapse of the, the minimal welfare net that exists within an American societal construct. But on the other hand, you see a different layer of society able to fluidly navigate things, push eviction cases, push development, uh, establish niches where they can promote or support really high-end high, de- high end development. So you have this dual image of a city. One is collapse, decay, hyper-poverty, where I mean the number 
was something egregious too, where more than half of New Yorkers are considered rent burdened, meaning they pay more than 30% of their income to rent. I think 20% are either close to or uh, below the poverty line. But on the other hand, you have this other class of citizenry that's talking about uh, apartments for 5,000, two-bedroom apartments, 5,000 a month, $10,000 a month. There was an unusual search. There's a, I think in Spain, for instance, you use Idealista, Fotocasa, things of the sort. Uh, in the U.S., there's Zillow, uh, an equivalent. But in Zillow, I remember doing a search and you could find more apartments that were over $20,000 a month than you could for under ten, under $1,000 a month in a specific sector in New York. It's 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 a striking uh, uh, situation. My my question, I suppose, is if you have that, uh, on the one hand, a complete collapse or imminent collapse, but on the other hand, something else that's working at a fluidity that's shocking, is that the same type of situation that you would describe, for instance, uh, the 18th, 17th century, and so on? That that kind of societal collapse, or did everything grind to a halt in those moments? Well, I mean, it's, it's a very good question. And what you're saying, it sort of reminds me of what you said before about uh, the fact that property taxes are what drives the city mm. uh, in the end, which um, we do live in a society, and we've always lived, human society has typically not been driven by those that are most directly fastest affected by coming catastrophe. So right now, there's already environmental catastrophe, in many areas of the world, but it is not hitting the people in Manhattan who live in ten thousand dollar apartments. At some point, it might because mm. Manhattan might flood, mm. uh, but but it's not there yet, right? And so, what you if you look at the um, the Enlightenment movements, uh, they were driven by middle class, well educated, you know, and middle class in the eighteenth century meant top of society because middle class wasn't near as as large as it is nowadays. Um, uh, and aristocratic students who actually believed that their right to speak freely was more important than respecting the governance structures that was, were in place. So that was they felt that their observation should be heard. It, yes, there was some reference to the poor. Yes, uh, they uh, activated the poor very much like, if you like, uh, the, the Bolshevik Revolution of uh, 1917 was an elite who activated the poor as their weapon to, to, to change Russian society. Uh, but it comes from those at least intellectual and then typically also economic elites. And it seems to me that currently what we have um, in 2019 is a world where the economic elites are just not in trouble enough yet to really care, even though they know in their minds that catastrophe is coming. It's a little bit like, um, I don't know if you're a Tolkien fan, but Gollum dancing with his ring on, on the Mount of Doom before he falls into mm. the fire, right? He's so happy that he's gotten the ring, even though it's completely clear that that ring will bring doom and destruction to him. Well, even but as he's falling, as he's, he's embracing. falling, he's trying to grasp onto it. Yeah. And that's sort of the, el the, the elite, and I'm not just talking about the 1% or whatever it is, but, but the, the economically comfortable, uh, the people who, who live in a society that is not yet affected by income inequality, that is not, or seems to be benefiting from it even, is not yet affected by climate change in any serious way. Um, and so until potential unease reaches those classes, and, and not just conceptual, but real unease, just like young educated people in the 17th century um, and 18th century felt a real unease because they were the first generation that could actually benefit from university. So for the first time, they could actually question 
themselves and question society. Until something like that happens in our modern society, until that middle class that doesn't file for you, that, that doesn't have to deal with eviction, that is comfortable with paying $10,000 uh, a month for rent, until they reach that catastrophe, it's, it's likely that no real change will take place. But it, the problem is that then it could be too late. Then it could be, then it collapses society, as historically has happened before, not with climate change. But of course, um, you know, the Roman Empire collapsed, even though if you lived in uh, 200 AD, you would have been perfectly comfortable as a Roman citizen and, and you knew that there were dangers on the horizon, but uh, you would have all the tools in the world to change the direction of your society for the better and nobody did because people were too comfortable 200 years later rome was gone right that could also happen to our society in some way if we're not careful i think the the image of Gollum, i i, I think the image i think the actual scene is he, i think he's hugging the ring as he's falling into the volcano like he doesn't even grasp the uh, he's dancing and then and he's he gets dancing. I think the, the ring falls and he tries to grab onto it. That's at least the film. I, do, I can't remember from the book. I've read the book. I can't but, remember. Um, yeah. the, in the film, the ring falls yeah. and he jumps after it to catch it. But I think he catches it midair and, and then, he, he's quite happy right, in that right, moment. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, he's because falling. he's got, it, he's got yeah. it again. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that's that's kind of... so. Yeah, that's an he, image. And Yeah, that's an image. And, and it's not as if the elites are unaware of the problems, right? Um, it's, it's not as if we or people, uh, if you like the billionaires of the world, do not understand that, uh, that we're facing real issues. It's just that they're not willing to give up their position, their, their comfort level at a in a sufficient way to actually deal with it. Because of course, a change of governance structure would lead to them having to give up, not just slightly more in taxes but radically their lifestyle radically the way that society looks at them and they look at society right now society still still accepts the idea that there is a guy left like jeff bezos with what's it 70 billion uh, dollars in wealth um he is maybe willing to spend a billion or five billion or whatever of that on charity but he's not willing to give up that position that essential position, and 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 that is that is the real question here. So what you see is the initiatives that are again incremental. Oh yeah, we have to have an environment tax, or we have to have a the Tobin tax to make sure that capital can't flow as easily from one country to the other and can't have such a destructive impact. Which I've got nothing against, except that we're talking about minimal things. So are there pockets of the of the world where you see a different scale of action, a different uh, non incremental? movement in regard to the subject they they do they do exist um yeah I, I have to be careful here in sounding like a pessimist who criticizes everything without offering real alternatives right i mean to be clear the arguments are made in the debate and i keep on making that is that i do not have a clear model that can work otherwise i probably would win a nobel prize or something like that i do not have a clear model that's better than democracy my argument is that we need to open the debate to look for that model right and that there, there's not enough room and space to actually unify our forces and and look at a better future look at a way to deal with those existential threats so i don't i don't by criticizing what's there i don't pretend to be uh, to become to have some kind of better model in mind i don't 
Um, at a local level, um, what you do have is a lot of radical um, attempts at, for example, communities that uh, live in a uh, radically altered way without any, for example, authority, anarchical structures. Mm. Um, the problem with those communities, besides the fact that we have very little empirical evidence that they're sustainable, um, you know, even here in Spain, in the south of Spain, you have certain villages that are organized around a certain philosophy, very much about growing your own crops, but also about not having property in the traditional way, not having, you know, in the neoliberal way. That's radical. But what you see that in the longer term, these these communities fail. Um, and even if they didn't fail, um, they would still exist within a wider national framework that has the traditional governance structure. So if a crime commit is committed, you still go to a police that depends on an authority structure that's in place, right? So it's not isolated. It's not an island in the Pacific Ocean as far as I'm aware, that is completely isolated from any traditional governance structures. At the same time, you've got the populist movements, both on the right and the, and the left, um, here in Spain, Podemos, who uh, certainly are more radical than just the Tobin tax or something like that, who are trying to um, radically change our the relationship between government and wealth and going even in their electoral program. Um, one of their main headlines is reduce the wealth of the super super rich mm -hmm. um again the, that in itself is a radical attempt in some ways uh it just hasn't proven to be very effective because populism is probably not the way to go and and if it it, it giving too much power in the hands of masses if it's not led by an intellectual elite can be very dangerous and can lead to sort of a exactly a wrong direction um, for society to take because typically the masses are not very good at evaluating the real risks. I mean, uh, it is not the masses who recognize the environmental problem. It's mm. not. The, it's the scientists who, for since the 1970s, have been knocking on the door and finally in the 1990s got taken seriously. It's that that intellectual elite of scientists that that put. It's the economic and and political scientists that that are pointing out over and over again that income inequality is an existential threat. It is not the masses that are. Are, are are revolting against it. Even the poor are not in the United States. The poor are not revolting against income inequality because they all believe that someday they could become rich themselves. Mm. So, uh, yes, there are radical alternatives. It's just not proven very effective so far um, in either um, a theoretical framework or actually having any serious impact on changing society in general. I know in the, in the 1970s and even, I think, like beginning into the, stretching into the 1980s, there was this commune obsession in the u.s and there, there, there's even pockets of i think there's a there's a well-known um i don't know how well known he is beyond the architecture circles but there's a, a fellow by the name of rem Koolhaas who i think his master's thesis was about um essentially buying portions of london and forming a pocket of a radically different societal structure was Dutch by the way yeah yeah which he and I, I the there is a there's a certain uh time frame where this happens but essentially he I can't remember exactly which came first but his publication of that comes within a year of the birth of some of these types of communes directly within urban fabrics I don't know how much of that is discussed today in terms of literature that I read I don't see that kind of exploration there is something uh a feeling of settlement that I think you're correct about in that the when you look at a city for instance just to just to use an example that I'm familiar with 
the broader administrative or governmental structures are seen as set in stone. Everything from code to uh, the the uh, council members that you engage with, that it's seen as a dynamic that's something you can't meddle with. But essentially, it's a, a, an idea in the U.S., public administration, Woodrow Wilson, you know, essentially 100 years ago, at that time period, multiple things were being investigated and one thing ended up uh, pushing, I think, harder than others and ended up manifesting in multiple cities uh, or, or multiple scales of, of society, everything from the scale of the city up to the state, up to the federal government and so on. But it seems to me that if you teach that, the fact that it was malleable at one point in time, it does begin to at least alter how your how students but how you perceive it as well in my own experience i can i can attest to that and that the the realm of sort of exploration of early 1900s late 1800s urbanism it sort of was a tangent off of a off of one of these uh, uh i forget what the exam is during the dissertation but they you know they haze you essentially to answer multiple questions within a week and so on but one of these questions was about governmental structures and the birth of sort of urbanism and that really began to stir a curiosity about, about this primordial start of what we consider cities. And after you dig into it, you start to really grasp that a lot of the things that we assume are set in stone were highly plastic and highly plastic not too long ago. And then when you dig into some of the presumptions behind them, for instance, a lot of urbanism in the U.S., uh, a lot of large-scale decisions made in the U.S. were essentially built on this idea of a, a thought that an agrarian society was pure, that working in the field, working in the uh, 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 with, with crops, with your hands, getting into sort of a day-to-day -day ritual of farming, that that was somehow pure, but also embedded deeply within the American spirit. So a lot of the actions about cities tend to be inherently a bit control heavy because the thought was if we let cities go too far they'll begin to override the purity of the agrarian reality that underpins america so there's this very unusual thing that as soon as i uncovered that it was it was quite bizarre and that our whole conception of cities is essentially a, a sort of anti-urban origin and that we try to make cities not quite cities but we try to give them a bit of a rural feel we try to control a bit behavior it, it, there's a bit of societal engineering embedded into it because it's in the time period of eugenics at a global scale and um, a range of other movements that we associate with really horrible periods of history but it seems like there are a lot of societies actively engaged with this stuff uh, but the u.s in that regard and the urban scale I think there's something quite malleable about it, but you have to really dig into the legal history and begin the challenge off of that legal history. And and I mean that's a fascinating example. And if you if you then look at that, is that um, because then there are certain basic values that can't be touched upon, at least not directly, incrementally, maybe. But mm -hmm. right. So if you then look at the change process um, through urban planning, for example. What, what time frame are you talking about? So someone has an idea. Let's say Kohlhaas hasn't really had the impact that maybe he wished he would have had. I mean, he's had an impact within certain circles, but I think he hasn't changed society 
as radically as maybe he would have hoped. Mm. Um, but if you look at the 19th century, radical ideas uh, start then incrementally because you can't touch on that, in this case, the purity of agricultural society. Mm. Um, how long is that process before... Um, there is not just an incremental change, but a radical change between points A and point B. Ah, so I, I know the city in 1880 or 1890 was a radically different thing than a city in 1920. So that's 40 years. That's that's basically less than two generations. Yeah. That's. But you do have other movements too, where it takes off in a very quick pace, um, and it. And it lingers in a way that's unusual. And prohibition is an interesting one in the U.S. where that was a... It's only two, 10 years. Very, yeah, very quick sort of hysteric moment within the U.S. And even the repeal of prohibition isn't quite a repeal in that there are certain pockets of the U.S. where still you have dry areas and it sort of led to a decision of... Um, it didn't sort of... You didn't peel back that layer. It actually maintained it and allowed local communities to, to engage with it. So in a way that hasn't left either. And what's interesting there actually, because you mentioned previously the risk factor and prohibition, I mean, it was quite a big change for society, given mm -hmm. that alcohol is ingrained in our societies. Um, but the risk factor, which nobody realized was crime that then mm -hmm. shot up, uh, besides the fact that you, can't, uh, that, you, that you can't implement it from a practical perspective, but it actually led to to organize crime as we know it, right? And that was then the, the, one of the motivating factors to go back to the old status quo, yeah. which which is yeah. sort of, they experimented with a radical idea, it went wrong, and they went back. The, I know that there's specific posters that were pinned up for prohibition and then for repealing prohibition. And the funny one is they actually make the same arguments. So I think for prohibition, the thought was you shouldn't drink because two of them at least was that it will impact the male portion of society and we're on the verge of or in the presence of a war and we need to maintain that population to be battle ready the second argument was that if you drink you're typically negligent of your family so it starts to decay the family structures within america accelerate that maybe a decade and it's the exact opposite is that you should drink because it makes you essentially more masculine on some level, so it's good for the military. And also, it's considered a cornerstone of, of a healthy, relaxed household. It's very fascinating how you take the same argument and it ends up being both pro-prohibition and anti-prohibition with just a time period of 10 years. Yeah, that, that is absolutely fascinating. And it, it also... Um, it is, that's this example that you're giving reflects how... Um, there may be changes within our um, decision-making process, within our legislation, but there are still fundamental values that are at the core. So if those fundament fundamental values can't be changed or can't be questioned, then you need to use those mm. on either side of the argument, right? Mm. Um, and that's exactly then what happened here. Mm. So even though there was a radical shift to, to implement prohibition and then to, to eradicate it again, um, you still need to hold on to something that is permanent or at least seems permanent. Mm. And maybe maybe that's um, that's exactly the problem here with uh, with current governance structures is that the very core values, and this is sort of going back to the beginning of our conversation, that the very core values that we see as absolutely essential and whether you want prohibition or not or whether you want a radically different 
participation model within a city or not, you still have the importance, the fundamental importance of freedom, of equity, of, 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 of emancipation and all those things. And they are not separated from the current governance structure. They are not separated from democracy. Mm. So as a result, you can never move away from that. You can change within that as long as those core values are not touched upon, which means you can't touch on democracy. You can't touch on the way that we organize our society. This is actually something that I find very uh, hopeful, I suppose, with, specifically within the context of the U.S. So there is a... Um, a book I think I read in grad school that briefly talked about the the two f- underpinning anchors of law within the what we call the West, right? The one is Roman law and the other one is sort of the Anglo-Saxon Nordic law. And so there's this, uh, in how it manifests within cities is quite unique, but in the US, obviously we have the Anglo-Saxon sort of Nordic, uh, Northern European version of the law. Um, but how it sits within the u.s and i think it's probably very unique to the united states is that when you ask most people i think what an american is um at least in a previous generation probably within this current generation they may reference the constitution specific liberties specific rights and i I haven't encountered that anywhere else in the world if i go to turkey i ask what it means to be turkish in spain you ask what it means to be spanish you typically don't reference a legal document. But in the U.S., there's this very specific notion. I mean, uh, there's a famous painter by the name of Norman Rockwell who did this four sort of paintings based upon the four liberties and so on. But that somehow is ingrained within, I think, a, a broad sector of society. And it gives a bit of hope in that you can, if you can strip down uh, an identity down to that, these core values, this baseline um let's say welfare net this this notion of of this is the line we don't cross this this equity these rights and so on this is the line as a country we don't cross if that's the foundation there's nothing determining what rises from it in the sense that it can be a range of governmental structures currently one obviously takes over but within the context of cities it seems to leave quite a lot of wiggle room especially if you put it in the context of municipal collapse which is i think fairly close within a lot of cities detroit was the most recent one but if a city reaches a breaking point i mean new york was at a breaking point in the 1970s for instance it rescued itself in a very peculiar way that also gave birth to high real estate development linked with a specific action that also links to donald trump but um if it if you have a vast societal point that achieves collapse and that broader societal construct understands itself based on these underpinning anchors but not the other thing this democratic structure then it seems like you could actually manifest a variety of governmental forms within the u.s construct provided that there's a the correct pressure applied to it that's it's that's a very interesting idea is that though just to check if i'm understanding you correctly because um in many ways, the United States is the epitome uh, because exactly of what you're saying. It was created based on a rejection of old European values. Uh, the idea that uh, the United States could be something new and the shiny light on the hill um, for humanity to follow. The founding fathers created it very much with that in mind. But the Constitution is not just a basis of values. It's also a basis of the governance structure that's there. It very clearly lays out the way that 
society should be organized. Mm. Um, it, it's impossible in the United States, more so, I would say, than in Europe, mm. to question the idea of democracy because, in the end, the Constitution guarantees that democracy. But see, I, th- I think this is, if we can, and maybe that's a task, that if you can disentangle the word from the baseline human rights that we're talking about, then it's possible... I, I don't, in terms of governmental structure, there's basic things about representation. Uh, I think the House of Representatives in the first sort of draft is about uh, one one representative for 30,000 people. So it, it's assumed to be sort of a representative thing. But in terms of, uh, the, for instance, whether it's capitalist, socialist, whatnot, communally oriented or private contract oriented, th- there's nothing like that actually holding it down. There's certain understanding of free labor being directly embedded within uh, the, the American psyche. But as a, as a legal construct, there's actually very little um, tethering it in that manner. The problem you're pointing at is it may be a Herculean task to disentangle all of that. Because I do agree within the contemporary context, the American sort of populace would equate democracy directly with an underpinning understanding of America. And 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 that is that is certainly an issue. But even theoretically, and this is more a question to you, because mm. is it possible to disconnect the constitution from the three branches of government, for example? Because the three branches of government guarantee U.S. democracy in the way it exists today. I, I think there is that on a federal level. I think on a local level, there's a great deal more flexibility. Again, with urban urban stuff being my uh, uh, sort of realm, I think. Even as it exists today compared to, I think, 100 years ago, there's a huge difference in terms of the weight of the federal government. But into, on a local level, I, I think there's there's a much more fluid transfer, actually, of, a, of administrative legacy, you can say, in the sense that if you consider America used to be colonies, so there's a certain governance structure embedded in place. And between pre-revolution and post-revolution, the city still functions, essentially. So there's a, a legacy of of a localized governmental structure that maintains. And it's sort of a remnant of of old Europe, but it has the capacity to be altered quite drastically. That, that intuitively sounds to me, um, and I have to be careful with, um, you know, with, with judging ideas without having properly thought about it, but intuitively that sounds like a much more promising path and narrative. The, the idea that at a local level, you're free to experiment in large part because it doesn't threaten in the beginning, at least, it doesn't threaten the larger whole. It is, you know, if New York fails, Los Angeles is fine. And, mm. and New York can go back to being what it was before the experiment, uh, that kind of thing. So at the local level, you can actually be radical in your approach. And then if it somehow works, others can adopt it and can copy it. And it becomes a bigger thing that eventually leads to radical social change. Then the idea of, for example, the U.S. Constitution, simply because to me, but but again, I have to be careful to judge it, but but it seems to me that um, any document that goes beyond general statements, uh, you know, like a, an undefined concept of freedom, we we all, you know, a document that says, oh, we we guarantee each other's freedom, fine, the human, the Declara- Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Very few people, I mean, there are some issues that are objectionable probably, but the, the general gist of it is accepted by people. People generally across the globe uh, maybe may not like the individual approach to it, but 
we all like freedom, we all like dignity, we all like these things. But the, the reason why it actually works uh, at a sympathy level is because nobody objects it because the the concepts haven't been defined properly. But the U.S. Mm. Constitution, for example, does define certain things very specifically. Mm. Um, like the three branches. Like the three branches and yeah. other things as well. And the moment you start doing that, then you create dogma. Now, for the United States, it has worked for uh, for a very long time. And the United States, certainly in the 19th century, I mean, if you forget about things like slavery and women's rights, uh, the United States was a, a, a example of real radical and positive social progress, mm. right? Um, and certainly compared to European failure. Um, but even the founding fathers were very clear about the idea that this couldn't last because they understood that at some point it would eat itself from the inside. And that's sort of what you're seeing now in the 21st century happening to some degree. So I think that from the two things you're saying, I feel very comfortable and hopeful to use your words about the idea of at a local level through urban planning to, to, to try out things that do not threaten the hierarchy and then incrementally in the 40 year time frame at least that's if that's a feasible uh, perspective to radically alter the way we as a society look at things that seems to me much more dynamic and um, compatible with the complexity of the challenges we face than holding on to a specific set of defined values. Hmm. I think, I mean, that, that that's trigger. I, I think you can tap into quite a lot about, it. quite a few people have written about how to engage with an established paradigm. You need to approach it from a meaningful periphery, right? And that is sort of how you're describing it. I think there is something quite... Um, interesting about the legal gap too that you framed i think you're completely right that if you do dig into the three branches that the constitution frames it does quickly lead to a specific form of governance but the legal gap may be that they don't dictate anything in relation to cities the only specific dictation is that you can't have a pocket of sovereignty within the u.s that undermines the established Bill of Rights, the human rights that the, the, the U.S. holds dear. Well, but okay, so let's test that. So, um, I mean, again, I think that this idea of doing things at a local level, and there the United States really shines because of its history and because of its state-centric republic, mm. that, that allows a lot of creativity and experimentation that is not possible in, for example, European democracy. So in that mm. sense, I think that's where the United States shines. But let's test that out. So if a city or a state in the United States were to become dictatorial, then that would automatically conflict with the Bill of Rights. Right. And so, you, yeah. you, you, you know, so you're still talking within a set paradigm of democracy, even though there might be different versions of democracy that you're talking about. It is still within that very clearly set idea of how society should be and that means that i would argue in the united states because exactly because of that respect for the constitution and bill of rights and the pledge of allegiance and the idea that the united states represents something bigger than just the united states whereas maybe a spaniard would feel very proud about spain but would never believe that spain is an example that other countries should follow right, and right. an american believes that the united states is a country that the rest of the world should follow right and that at some point in an ideal utopia everyone is like the united states right um that means that it is much easier in spain to say hey maybe we should well actually spain is a bad example because of franco and its modern history let's say a country such as germany or the netherlands 
Again, Germany is difficult because of its Second World War. The Netherlands. Keep picking. <laughs> Keep picking. I'm, I'm picking the Netherlands because I'm comfortable with it. In a country like the Netherlands, you could, I mean, easily make the case of, hey, maybe we need to question our democratic system and maybe uh, let's, let's, let's have a conference. Is a dictatorship the, the way to go for the Netherlands? Now, most people would disagree at that conference mm. with the statements, but you could have a conference. In the United States, holding a conference saying, should the United States become a dictatorship, goes so to the core value of how Americans see themselves that it's almost impossible to, to have that, right? Despite... Uh, the incredible uh, freedom of speech that that exists in the United States, and despite all your legal um, guarantees that you can say whatever you like, emotionally, it would be much harder to take that position within the United States than within the Netherlands, for example. I I do think it has to do with words, though. For instance, dictatorial um, form versus, let's say, democratic form. Immediately, as soon as you discuss that, it seems like you tap into either a supporting or a hindering of baseline rights uh, in terms of freedom of speech, freedom of property, whatnot. Because that connection is there between those baseline rights and democracy. But if I was to frame it as, let's have a discussion about whether our urban construct should be more top-down rather than bottom-up, that actually is a discussion that happens quite frequently within the U.S., in the in the sense that you maintain these equities that have been established, this is the line we don't cross sort of thing. But there are huge differences within cities across the U.S. that some are extremely top down, some are extremely bottom up. And in the sense of uh, what you can, on a very basic level, what you can do with the land you own. Uh, in some cities, it says do what you may as long as you don't hurt with, hurt your neighbor. Other cities have very specific uh, frameworks that restrict exactly what you can do with that land. So in, in a way, there are, I don't think it's referred to in that regard, but there are dictatorial versus non-dictatorial pockets, large pockets that exist within the American construct. It's just referred to as top-down versus bottom-up. But when you say top-down, are you actually at a city level, for example, talking about an unelected mayor? Because that's what we're talking Because otherwise, what you're talking about is um, simply a more European welfare state, strong government system versus, if you like, the hardcore um, libertarian American approach mm-hmm. to... Right? Is, there, is there a serious discussion about mayors that are being elected by a committee of intellectuals, for example? That, I don't know. Maybe there is something embedded within the Constitution that embeds elections as we understand them within every pocket of sovereignty. That, that may be the case. But there is strange things where, based upon a person's discretion, you can overturn the public will. But I don't know, in terms of getting that initial office, I, I, think, I, think, I think that's a good point. I, I don't know if there's that level of experimentation. I think the, what may exist is what exactly that office means in terms of the um, governmental form that it dictates, but in terms of the achieving of the office, most likely it is, as you're describing, that it's somehow linked a dialect of this constitutional legacy. Right, and in itself, that, that, so having that flexibility and that debate is, always, is very positive, right? And that experimentation at that local level, mm. even if it's within still a set framework, 
is something very positive. And um, there is uh, there is a certain quality um, to to U.S. society and U.S. Poli- politics. I mean, I say it as an outsider, as an interested amateur with respect to American politics, but that that doesn't exist in Europe in that sense. That you know, just let's test it out, let's go for it, mm-hmm. and and let's have that because all, all of your rights are guaranteed. Individual rights are much stronger in the United States, and so you can just go and then try it out. But then I believe that we're still talking about incremental issues because right. the idea of a official, elected official, actually being able to overturn the masses in some way, decisions made by uh, by the electorate or whatever, that is something that exists in Europe as well. Mm. Except that you know that's that's sort of the basis of the welfare state in many aspects of the Scandinavian model, for example. You know, so you have on the one hand the libertarian model, on the other hand the if you like the Nordic model. Uh, and that clash between the two is a conversation that can be had in the United States. Uh, Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist, mm. and he is very popular, mm. and that is acceptable. But there's still a hard-coded limit yeah. to that, and that hard-coded limit is might be very, might be the problem. So my my argument here is is not that within our current structures we don't have creativity or we don't have the ability to try out things. But even cities, even the place where that, 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 that experimentation can take place most effectively still has to adhere to structures that can't be touched. And the fact that we can't touch it, the fact that we can't, for example, say in the United States, what could we learn from the Chinese governance model? Yeah, you can say it, but it's not going to be taken seriously. It's mm. not going to get a lot of space in the newspapers. Mm. Because, of course, we don't want to be like China. They are a one-party state. That goes against everything that the constitution holds dear. No, I, I think I think that's I think that's valid. I, I think there may be something the, the two pockets that I can maybe this is something to be continued so you can eat. Uh, but the, the 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 one thing I can think of is there's something about um, when you corporealize a body politic, right? When you make uh, incorporated territory versus non-incorporated territory. I have a I have sort of peripheral readings of this in terms of literature but it seems like unincorporated territory can achieve a variety of different governmental forms specifically because it isn't manifesting as a body politic within the u.s the other thing that i can consider and and again maybe this is what we can continue to discuss uh is the public administration channel or the sector within cities in that those aren't typically elected officials. They're hired experts. Uh, and those people have significant, increasingly significant sway over the urban fabric. And it, it could be, and again, I don't know this, I'll, I'll sort of delve into it a bit and see if there are pockets where this appears, but there could be pockets where the public administration sector actually takes on such a significant role within uh, urban body politic that it starts to behave like a vastly different non-elected governmental form in that sense maybe we've created an interesting basis here uh, mm. in the uh, let me just for anyone listening to this it's not that i'm desperate to eat it it's about lunchtime <laughs> you know not that i <laughs> i can't survive without eating but it's lunchtime and i have class afterwards so it's just um, <laughs> to, um, to be clear about that but i think that this the basis that we've created here is is maybe uh, and that is in line with you asked me what are the alternatives that do exist are the authors that are looking for potential alternatives mm. um 
where dem democracy is maybe the celebration of the masses, maybe we need to celebrate local technocracy somehow. Maybe that mm. is a path forward, right? Um, where at the local level, it's not threatening to the overall structures and technocrats are more capable of taking in the advice of experts, of intellectual elites, uh, without directly having to respond and justify their decisions towards masses who may not have the knowledge or understanding of the the, the issues at hand. Mm. And, and so maybe that's a good basis for next conversation. How can um, local technocracy challenge the, the governance status quo that we live in? Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, Balder. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>